from NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. This is episode 196 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to Ministry Monday wherever you listen to podcasts each week. And hey, thanks for joining us today. Today is the last episode Ministry Monday will be airing before a two-week Holy Week and Easter hiatus. We wanted to leave you with an episode that would provide a prayerful pause as you wrap up the last rehearsals, make the last binders, and maybe write the last thank you notes to your Holy Week musicians. Today, we begin a conversation focusing on the sequences, and we hear from Father J. Michael Jonkis. Today, we ask the questions, what is the history of the sequences form? What terminology predates the sequences? How can we most effectively employ sequences in our parishes? It is a great episode from which to prepare for the sequence for Easter Sunday. Today on Ministry Monday, I'm speaking to Father Mike Jonkis. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am excellent. Good to see you again. Good. It's good to see you too. Thank you for being willing to chat with us. And I will admit so soon after I just had you on for Advent, um, your reflections and your assistance in helping us to break down the prefaces for Advent were so enlightening. So thank you for your time yet again. Well, thank you for being so nice in your assessment. <laughs> <laughs> well, today I asked you to sit down and chat with us on Ministry Monday about the sequences. You know, I mean, as we record this, we are still in Lent, but we are quickly approaching Holy Week, of course, in the Easter octave and, of course, the Easter season. And as a pastoral musician, I have always used the sequences, but I have to share a quick anecdote as we begin. I um, I once spoke to my husband about Easter Sunday Mass. He had gone to his parish with his mother instead of me, which is no problem. And I said, how was Mass? And he said, well, everything went great but they had this long chanty thing before the gospel and I don't know what it was. And so of course, while I explained to him that it was a sequence, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if we just spent a little bit of time for all pastoral musicians so that we can have a better sense of the sequences so that we can help our parishes and our congregations understand them as well. Excellent. I think from now on, I will define the sequence as that long chanty thing. <laughs> Excellent, right? Yeah, excellent, good. I'm glad to hear it. So as we start, I'd love to kind of lay a foundation for the sequences. So first and foremost, where can where do we focus and where do we find the vocabulary and terminology that we use for the sequences? 
Oh, excellent. Uh, well, it helps us to remember that this is a product of the medieval West. So the foundational framework of the Roman Rite Mass has already been established. They've already got, for example, introits and graduals and all the rest of that. But this is like a second wave, what I'd call a second wave of creativity, uh, starting probably around the ninth century. So it's early Middle Ages, and therefore the terminology is all going to be in Latin. So I'll give you actually five terms, and just knowing the terms might, might be helpful to, to get a sense of how the, the sequence developed. So the first is the term jubilus or jubilatio or sometimes laudes. And you can even tell jubilatio, jubilation, right, uh, in, in English. Laudes uh, is praises. So the idea was that the Alleluia, obviously not sung during Lent, but sung at other points during the year to greet the gospel. That Alleluia has at its core a Hebrew phrase, Hallelu, and then Yah, which is Yahweh, uh, just the, the shortened version of it. So praise God. Well, what the musicians cleverly did was develop the Yah syllable at the end into this incredible melisma where you get piles and piles of notes on the name of God. And then they developed a kind of theology behind that as well. Uh, it, the Easter one that we're used to, that's a really short melisma, but it could go up to hundreds of notes and be this wordless um, uh, exaltation. So eubolus is the first thing to think about. Um, the second is the term tropus, and we get trope from that. And the problem is it meant a whole bunch of different things in the Middle Ages. Uh, I like to think of it as translated as insertion. So a trope could be just new notes sent to the to particular uh, melody. It could be new words set to a particular texted melody, or it could be both, both new words and new music. But um, the closest we have for that in the present rite might be in the uh, penitential rite, where you have, you were sent to heal the contrite, Lord have mercy. Clearly the Lord have mercy part is the established text. And then there's this insertion. Well, because that text was originally in Greek, Kyrie eleison, right? What they would do if they had a lovely long melody on the Kyrie part was add a phrase now in Latin. So you had Kyrie, Lord of all the universe, eleison, right? So that's, that's kind of an example of a tropus. Uh, it'll become clear how the sequence connects to that in a second. Now, the prosa is the third term, or prosa or prose. And technically, these became the additional texts. When you wanted to add a text to the jubilus, because frankly, if you're singing 150 notes on <laughs> one syllable, right? Sometimes even hard to remember what the what the, the melody is. So adding <laughs> right. texts to it can really be, be helpful. And then that 
eventually connects to our fourth term, and that's the one we use today, sequentia or sequentia, plural. Um, and that just means the following. <laughs> so if you had the alleluia and the ya syllable then began to have all sorts of texts associated with it, it's what follows the alleluia. So what's left over. But that's actually the term I'm going to use for number five. And this one really only starts happening uh, past the Middle Ages when theorists tried to figure out what was going on. And that was sequelae. And uh, I like to think of the term translated as leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> so the additions. And technically, if the prosa were additional texts, then the sequelae were the additional music, right? And sequentia, the way we're using it, is both texts and music that are new, that are uh, arising from this. Is that fairly clear for terminology? Yes, mm -hmm. okay. I think it gives us a, a good, good foundation to start from. All right, all right. Good, now from there, as we look and examine the sequence in I would say a post-Vatican II context, what is the liturgical purpose of the sequences as they stand today? Oh, wow, uh, that it, brilliant question. And in some ways kind of difficult to, to, to actually define, but I can give you some of the, the uh, liturgical purposes that seem to have generated these texts and music. Uh, the, Primarily, they're about enhancing the solemnity of worship. So we really associate, again, I, I mentioned they, they did not appear in Lent. Uh, you could have a solemnity in Lent that didn't involve adding extra music and extra text. But there was this tradition that when you had a high feast, you could convey the solemnity of the worship and kind of meditate on either the theology of the mass itself or on the meaning of specific feast days. So um, it was actually uh, early on, frequently just employed as uh, more additional notes on the Yah syllable. And then eventually as the, the texts became associated with it, then you got new information. It was like a liturgical commentary on the foundational liturgy done as part of the prayer of the mass. So very interesting. Now, uh, uh, that's early on. Eventually it becomes its own form, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And the difference between a sequence and a hymn, hymns were especially associated with the liturgy of the hours. They had their own kind of forms. And a hymn had a single melody in most cases a single melody, and then all of the stanzas were sung to that single melody. A sequence was different. A sequence usually did couplets. So there would be a single melody for two stanzas, and then you get a new, a new melody and sing two stanzas to that. And then you get a new melody and sing that. So if you're thinking about congregational participation, hard enough to get people singing a six verse hymn to exactly the same melody. Imagine how complex it is to have couplets sung and then uh, uh, change the melody every time. Uh, 
So fundamentally, this is um, uh, religious communities that are developing in the in the Middle Ages, making their own contribution as a commentary on the liturgy. I think, although I've never heard anybody expressly say this, I think this is the same impulse that generated among Lutherans the hymn of the day, where you chose a particular text and music to comment on the readings that are proclaimed that day, uh, the central feast and its meaning. Good, good enough sense of the liturgical purpose. It's festivity yes. and commentary all at the same time. Yes. And I think, too, if we tie that back to the sequences that still exist and are recommended, especially as we now go into Easter, that makes a lot of sense that we have the sequences for, of course, Easter, Pentecost, Corpus Christi. Um, they are really highlighting some of the highest feast days, the highest holy days in our calendar. I have to ask you a challenging question, and you, yeah. I, I, I'm sure you know the answer. I don't. Um, why is there no Christmas sequence still in our calendar? Because it, it because the Christmas sequences were so plentiful. Oh, okay. this is this is hard to to even uh, articulate in some ways. Uh, there, this was the major form of creativity in certainly the High Middle Ages. So, literally thousands of these were produced. Relatively few of them uh, made the move from the local community or maybe oh, wow. not even just a local community or say a group of the same members of a religious order. So there'd be Franciscan sequences for say Christmas, but that would be different than Benedictine sequences for Christmas or you, you get the idea. Right. Um, so part of the reason is Victime Pascali Laudes is one of the earliest ones that we've got. And if it was an international hit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I know Father Rock O'Connor is going to be speaking of imagery, and part of the reason it's an international hit is because it's drama. You know, you have a conversation with Mary, and Mary relates about uh, the, the resurrection. She doesn't see the body of the risen Christ. What she sees are the remnants of him, uh, of his clothing. And that's all presented dramatically. So you can see where that would be pretty pretty popular. Uh, then by, by the later period, you've got some of the greatest poets, uh, poet theologians like Thomas Aquinas, uh, creating these magnificent commentaries on the feast or, or, or the, uh, the, the meaning of that particular part of the mass. Did I answer your question? Yes, you did. Okay. You did. So moving forward then, looking at the sequences that still are recommended um, in our post-Vatican II worship. Do you have any suggestions for employing sequences in a parish musical practice? Oh, wow, yes. Uh, since I prepped for this, believe it or not, <laughs> <laughs> I have four possible models for you. And uh, this, again, Parishes are at so many different stages in their own development. So um, not any one of these models is, is I'm going to present to you as the right one or the norm. These are just different ways of engaging it, including one which allows people to simply recite the, the sequence. 
uh, as a piece of poetry. Personally, I think that's kind of absolutely the last resort. And what you may want to do if that's the last resort, I'm not even calling it one of the models, but <laughs> if reciting the, the, the poetry of the sequence is what you're going to do, you might want to have some music in the background, at least giving people the, the impression that this is meant to be a musical event. So, but let's, let's go now to the four models. Okay. Model one has the choir and or the cantor chanting the given text in Latin, right? Now notice it doesn't at this stage even involve the congregation, but if it doesn't involve the congregation and they're singing, I really believe you have to either put up on slides or have in the parish um, participation aid, a translation of the text. Uh, the, the meaning of the text is really important. And just to sing it in Latin and assume that people remem will remember its meaning from perhaps earlier on is probably not a, a wise pastoral choice. So if you're going to have the choir or cantor sing it in Latin, have the translation available to the congregation. Uh, if you really want to reproduce what we think happened historically, remember I talked about couplets? Yes. That each stanza would have a, a single melody, and then you'd have two verses to it, and then you move to the next. Well, continue that pattern. But what probably happened in male monasteries, or maybe even mixed gender monasteries, would be that the uh, men would sing one of the stanzas, and then the higher voices, the boys, possibly, or women would sing the same melody, but with a new text. So shifting octaves, if you can do that um, with the choir, that'd be absolutely great. Uh, still in this first model, if you do want to get the congregation singing this with you, even though the melodies keep changing, you might have the choir just sing the first stanza in, in its form, and then invite the congregation to repeat with the, the next the next verse. So it's the same melody. They've at least heard the melody, and now they can sing the the, the uh, corresponding verse. So that's model one. That keeps it in Latin, keeps it as chant, whatever. The second model is very, very similar. It again keeps the chant melody that we've we've had handed down to us, but now set with a vernacular text. And that actually appears in our uh, sacramentary. It may appear in the lectionary as well. At the moment, I don't remember because there's so many different ways that this is set up in different parts of the world. But there are English translations that try to um, mimic in some ways what the original uh, Latin does. That's always, of course, hard to do when you're moving from one language to another. But in this case, they keep the same number of syllables, so that will work with the melody. And they even, in the case of the later sequences, <clears throat> you know, 13th century kind of sequence, 12th, 13th century, they will even keep the rhyme scheme. So you get mm -hmm. the end rhyme that was part of how the sequences operated, but now all sung in the vernacular. So same thing. Could be just the choir singing the vernacular, could be 
choir and congregation or cantor and congregation alternating. Frankly, it could be even be the congregation singing it side to side, like uh, we're used to from some of that uh, antiphonal kind of psalmody that we do. So that's model two. How's that? Great so far. Okay. Then number three is that we give this now to the congregation. Of course, the choir might be supporting it with harmonies and all this stuff, but we're not using a chant melody anymore. And instead we're doing a metrical translation of the sequence now set to a hymn tune. Now, let me unpack that just a little bit. The problem is, as we've said before, uh, doing these couplets where it's the same melody for two verses, but then you go to a new melody. Well, a lot of people said, this is just too hard for a congregation to do. So what we'll do is stick a single melody and then have all of the stanzas of the, of the sequence sung to that particular melody. Holy Spirit, Lord of light, from the dark celestial height, thy pure beaming radiance give. Now notice, that's a beautiful version of the underlying Latin text. You've got end rhyme at the beginning, first two lines, third line, a new ending. But then if we were to sing the rest of the verse, you'd get two lines with the same end rhyme and a concluding line, which rhymes with a third line. Uh, I'm, I, it's too technical in some ways, <laughs> but this is a perfect way that you could get the congregation to sing the sequence in a metrical translation rather than the uh, formal ones given us in the sacramentary. And then I'm saying that's to a hymn tune. Yes. Uh, finally, way back when, those of us that are old, like I am, now 70, right? <laughs> where I you know, was part of the, the Roman rite prior to the Second Vatican Council, we remember the extraordinary enthusiasm people had for moving toward the vernacular. Gabe Huck, very famous name in the liturgical uh, implementation. Gabe was absolutely in love with the folk tune, Michael Row the Boat Ashore. Yeah, okay. With the mm -hmm. Alleluias. Mm -hmm. And he made himself this wonderful project of setting the sequence melodies to Michael Row the Boat Ashore. <laughs> <laughs> and you okay. can still find that because his idea was well, everybody knows that tune and everybody's willing to sequence. And it's got the Alleluia as part of it. And that remember, you know, reminds us that this is arising out of the Alleluia. Uh, and then you could have. Uh, a cantor uh, sing the, the changeable words and the congregation just come in on the alleluias. So that's a kind of fourth model. I, I don't know, it might remind people too much of the 60s and the 70s, but at least <laughs> during that period, that was a way of getting the congregation to sing in a way other than metrical hymnody and hymn tunes. But you, you give four great, I would even say five, although maybe four and a half, we'll say. But you, you, give, you give great options here that make it very clear to me that it's very doable. I sh that's probably too plain of a way to say it. It's very accessible to make this, you know, very integrated into some of the holiest days of the year. And I say it that way for a reason, because I want to address the elephant in the room, if it's okay, in that we know that Easter Sunday morning can be filled 
to the brim with people who may not have hymnals because there are so many people it's standing room only um participation for that reason might be lacking or not as you know not as strong as normal and so to try and find these ways to get people participating on some of the highest holiest days of the year make a lot of sense to me and i like you said there's not one single solution we have to examine our parish and our community and what's really best for it absolutely yeah mm -hmm. uh the other thing that's great about it this is maybe a little technical but there was a blip in which we did you sing the gospel alleluia first and follow it by the sequence and then get to the proclamation of the gospel or did you reverse that and have the sequence sung first and then the gospel alleluia and there were various arguments why you do one or the other but you can probably tell historically since this probably arose out of the eubulus of the alleluia probably historically speaking the Alleluia should come first, then the sequence, and then the proclamation of the gospel. There is even some thought that the reason the eubulus went on so long is that it covered the deacon moving from his place to the place where Interesting. he Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And that okay. it was supposed to be the wordless singing of the choirs of heaven while he was moving to do that. So anyway. Well, that definitely adds another layer. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful way to prepare us. I think this would just be a perfect compliment for us as pastoral musicians as we run around and make sure that everyone is prepared. I think it gives us a, a breath to prepare ourselves as well for the sequence because it's something that, like you said, is such great commentary and that just can continue to elevate, especially Easter Sunday, given that that's the one soon. But I think it also gives us a chance to kind of take a minute and focus on something that we don't do as often throughout the year. Exactly. Before we wrap up today, I wanted to ask you one more question, if that's okay. Um, I know that in April, you will be a part of a series that Westminster Choir College mm -hmm. is offering. Would you mind just sharing just a bit of information on it? Oh, sure. Uh, I can't speak to the other three presenters because they have their own uh, uh, particular topics. Uh, my topic is extremely general, composing for the church. And it says, <laughs> I've already mentioned that I am one of the ancient ones, you know, 70. <laughs> I'm basically looking back over a compositional career. And I want to um, share with people who are not only Roman Catholic, but other Christians, um, part, of, part of the, I'd say, uh, guidance that our bishops have given us in terms of the kinds of composition they're looking for. So things like responsorial psalms or hymnody or dialogues, you get the idea, antiphons. Mm -hmm. So giving examples of each of those and then using uh, something I've composed uh, as an example to, to unpack it a bit. So that's, that's my uh, particular topic. And uh, there's supposed to be some engagement as well with questions and answers once I'm done. Great. And that will be free to the public. And I will put that information in the show notes of this episode, should you want to sign up and attend and you're listening. And of course, I would be remiss if I also didn't mention that you are joining us at the NPM convention in Louisville this summer. I am. And joyfully, I get to 
do education on form criticism of the Psalms. That's and right. That has to do what that has to do with the way we sing them. So psalmody spirituality i believe is the title of your session and i am very much looking forward to it uh, do you have any closing thoughts in terms of the sequences before we end today just that i think they're wonderful and i hope that they will deepen people's experience of these really high feasts i hope so too thank you for your time today if i don't get a chance to wish you this i hope you have a blessed holy week and a joyous easter thank you you as well Thanks so much to Father Jonkis for his time and his expertise. For more information about the sequences and his presentation in the Westminster Choir College series, check out the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org. The recording of Victime Pascali Laudes was proclaimed and recorded by me in the spring of 2020 at a time when our Easter celebration was completely virtual due to COVID-19. From all of us at Ministry Monday, we hope that your Holy Week and Easter celebrations are safe, prayerful, and filled with the joy of the resurrection. We'll see you back here for our next episode on The Sequences on April 25th.